2015, a documentary called What Happened, Miss Simone, was released. It was a candid and often disturbing account of the life of activist and singer Nina Simone. The uh, executive producer was her only child, her daughter Lisa, who had experienced firsthand the notoriously difficult and immensely gifted woman. Uh, Nina Simone died in 2003. Lisa Simone spent a decade in the US military before finding her own voice, performing in Broadway shows, making albums with an acid jazz band called Liquid Soul. Her first solo album was a big band tribute to her mother. Um, Here is her version of My Baby Just Cares For Me. baby don't care for shoes my baby don't care for clothes no my baby just cares for me my baby don't care for cars and races my baby don't care for for high town places Liz Taylor is not his style and even Liberace smirks something he can't see Something you just can't see 
That's Lisa Simone with her version of My Baby Just Cares For Me, live with the Tromso big band. Her current uh, tour is also a tribute to her mother. It's called Keeper of the Flame, a daughter's tribute to Dr Nina Simone. It's in Australia, uh, not coming to New Zealand at this point. But I caught out with Lisa Simone, asked her to talk to me about that track, My Baby Just Cares For Me. Talk to me about that track, please. Is it one of your favorites? Well, not until I started doing it. <laughs> uh, to be honest with you, the, the arrangement, my arranger's name is Ken Moyer. And when I gave him that song to arrange and he put his stamp on it, all of us know my mother's brilliant piano solo in that song. What he did was, he turned it into a solo for all of the horns. And so you hear the chords that the piano play, played by the horns, and it simply lifts it up just when you thought it couldn't get any better. For me personally, it gets better because it gives it a whole new flavor and really makes it my own. I remember watching um, the documentary, What Happened with Simone, which you co-produced, executive produced, and thinking, "Ah, I'd like to talk to you. And here you are. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, mother-daughter relationships are notoriously difficult, but yours, you know, beats most of them uh, off the field. How are you feeling about your mother now? I'm celebrating her, celebrating my legacy. My mother did the best she could under very uncertain and painful circumstances, and she was probably one of the most loneliest people that I've ever known. And um, she paid a huge price to be the woman that we all love, revere, and remember. And so I've done a lot of forgiveness work and uh, removed many of the uh, parts of my heart that uh, were in pain. And in so doing, I've been able to access the love that was always there, but was hidden underneath so much. And now I'm celebrating my legacy, celebrating my mother and and just um, making a conscious decision to carry this, carry on the mantle that I, I'm wearing with joy. It's time. You had a rapprochement with your mother while she was still alive. Did that forgiveness work start then? Absolutely. It started long before she passed away. I put her in what I call a training program in how to love me. Yes, I wanted and, to talk uh, to you about that. <laughs> What is that? <laughs> well, when I realized I couldn't run far enough away because somehow she'd always find me. And when I also realized that as the only child, eventually the time would come when I would have to turn around and, and face my legacy um, in a way that I had never imagined I would have to do. I made a different decision that instead of running, I would turn around and embrace it. And instead of trying to live in my mother's world, which is what we often do as children, when you think about it, our parents are our parents. And as we become adults, a lot of times that that dynamic can remain in place um, until we, we, because the parents don't usually do it, are the ones that say, wait a minute, I'm an adult now. Um, And so when I made the decision that I wasn't going to try to live in her world anymore, it was her turn to try to live in mine or not try to, to be taught how to live in my world. Because in my world, we all feel good. We all respect one another. 
we're all happy. And, but I also had to, uh, it forced me to figure out what that meant for me because I had never voiced, I'd absorbed so much through the years. I had to find my voice to say, this hurts my feelings. I don't like it when you do that. Can we try to do this a different way? You know what? Let's just talk on another day when you're feeling better. And I had to find that. So we both grew and we both learned and we both evolved. And by the time my mother passed away, our relationship was superlative. And I was angry for many years that she left this world before my fantasy of what our relationship could be was realized. Um, but it was, uh, I smile as I talk to you about it now. And I'm very pleased that I made the decision that I did and had the impetus to act on it. You were dealing with somebody with mental illness and she was diagnosed bipolar. That added an extra complexity into it. I mean, how receptive was she to the training program sometimes? Well, she didn't know she was in it. First of all, that would not have been a wise thing for me to tell her. <laughs> But uh, there was the grinding of gears. I mean, we weren't just dealing with somebody that was bipolar. We're dealing with a genius. Most geniuses throughout history, I've challenged every person I've ever spoken to to please educate me on a happy genius. Is there one? They all have their issues, their difficulties, their challenges. And they all sacrificed greatly to leave us with the gems that we still um, benefit from today. So um, she... She didn't know she was in the program, and there were times when she would be like, I can't believe you're talking to me this way and, and everything, but she started to really respect me in a way that I don't think she realized she wasn't doing, and she started to hear what I was saying. I mean, that was my mother. Mothers love their children, even though their behavior at certain times might not exemplify that, and I felt in my mind that if I tell mommy, okay, you're stepping on my foot, that hurts. Can you not do that? Then she'll get off my foot because now she knows it hurts. I'm hurting my daughter. I don't want to do that. But if she would continue to do that, I would also know what I needed to do and where her head was. So it was definitely a, a, a wise decision on my part that I definitely advise many people to do in their relationships because um, we have to take responsibility when it comes to honoring ourselves even when it comes to our loved ones. If we don't take responsibility and wait for others to love us the way that we need to, we might not ever change the dynamic that's causing us so much pain. You spent 10 years in the military, I think, from the age of 18. I'm imagining your, your mother was a bit dismayed at the prospect of you doing that. Oh, she was in shock. She was, she was at a loss for words, which was not very often. And she had nothing to do with the decision that I made. But when I did share the, that news with her, I was surprised at her reaction. And really? uh, actually, the more, the more she squirmed, the more I kind of enjoyed it <laughs> at the time until I went into basic training and said, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> So when you came out of the military, you rediscovered music, or did you rediscover music and leave the military as a consequence? What happened? I was not happy in the job that I was doing and while I was in and was searching, was asking the question, you know, almost like, what do I want to do when I grow up? What do I want to be? Um, and so 
to make a long story short, I discovered singing again while I was in the military. People found out that I had a nice voice. I started getting offers to sing with other singers, which led to musicians asking me to sing with their bands. And then all of a sudden I had an epiphany one day. I was 28. I was still active duty. And I was like, wait a second, maybe this is what I should be doing with my life. Huh? What a novel idea. I, I enjoy it. It makes me happy. It makes other people happy. But no, none of the adults in my life had ever encouraged me to do it as a profession. So when I shared what I thought was amazing, fantastic, magnificent news with my parents, I was dismayed that they were not like overflowing with happiness like I was. They were both extremely um, dubious. And of course, I understand that because they didn't want me to fall into some of the same crevices and have some of the same experiences that uh, most people are very familiar happens to artists. And have you? Oh, yes, I have. But the difference is I chose to do this. It didn't choose me. It chose my mother. And so this is all she knew. I, at the age of 28, chose it. Therefore, my relation to it, I feel, and my sense of dedication uh, was different. Also, I was not dealing with certain emotional, um, mental challenges like my mother was. So um, I stuck with it. And a couple of years ago, I walked away from it all. I just said, I'm tired of this dynamic. I don't feel the joy anymore. And my mom hated it for many years. She hated the piano in her latter time of her life. She told me that. And I think that if she could have, she would have walked away too, even if it was just for a little while to reboot and to take a pause. You know, sometimes it's so necessary in our lives to do that so that if we choose to come back, it's on our own terms. It's a choice. Therefore, our relationship to it shifts. And that's what's happened with me. Why do you think she had no choice about it in the first place and why she couldn't take a break or walk away? Who knows? That's a good question for Dr. Nina Simone. I don't know. Yeah. You, uh, parents separated when you were eight years old, I think. And for some years after that, you and your mother travelled all over the show, didn't you? Yes, she called us nomads. She was the first person who ever said that word to me. She said, we're nomads now. What was that like for you? It wasn't easy. A lot of shifts took place. My father wasn't around anymore. The home I was raised in was not there anymore. I was going from home to home, school to school, place to place. Also dealing with a person who was recovering from a messy divorce, which uh, when I took a class in college on behavioral theory, they gave us a list of the most painful life experiences. Death was number one and divorce was number two. So when you are, as a human, are dealing with a divorce and having to pick up the pieces of your life, that can be difficult when you're not a single parent and when you are not dependent upon um, a team like your manager and your musicians and all that stuff to uh, to help you to get out there and make money. So there was a lot going on. But and what I about think mom you? was discovering. I mean, it wasn't an me. easy marriage in many ways. And according to the documentary, what happened, Miss Simone, 
Andy mm. Stroud was a was a violent partner at times. He wasn't violent to me. No. And uh, so I saw that one time I mentioned in the documentary is the only time that I ever witnessed anything. I know that it took place in their relationship for a fact. Um, and so I think, as I said in the documentary, that violence began before they got married. So with that, I mean, I, I sound very judgmental, but I, I would never marry a man that treated me that way before we got went down the altar. And why would I be with a woman who triggered me in this way before we go down the altar? So they both did it for their own reasons, which I don't agree with. But then again, if they didn't, I wouldn't be talking to you now. So, and, and if they didn't, chances are we may not have known Nina Simone in the way that we are talking about her now. So everything happens the way it's supposed to. As for me and the relationship between my parents, they did a good job of hiding and keeping me protected from a lot of the dynamics within their adult relationship. You you later became embroiled in, in legal arguments with your father. I think you filed a lawsuit against him, accusing him of fraudulently selling off your mother's personal items and master recordings, which rightfully belonged to you. Um, and then there was a whole nother legal fight and you were accused of misappropriating funds. It all sounds very painful and very messy. Is it sorted now? It's still in orbit. Um, but I can say, first of all, you're correct. It was very painful, and it helped me to grow in ways that I never imagined I would ever grow. Um, it also helped me to realize that I what I can do with my own career and my own life without what I feel is rightfully mine. People don't really know the story uh, from me. I have yet to tell my side of what really happened. Do you want to do it now? Not, not here, no, because we don't have enough time. <laughs> okay. and, but I appreciate the offer. All I can, but I, what I can say is this, that... Um, I will make the announcement when the time comes so that the world can celebrate with me <laughs> when everything is rightfully rightfully in, it, in its home. And, and I've learned also that when it comes to my own career, my own music, my own children, sometimes, you know, people have asked me in the past, what's the, what's the best thing your mom ever taught you? And for a while, I would say she taught me what not to do which is just as important as sometimes teaching your kids what to do. And so I have my own catalog. I have my own music. I have my own portion of this legacy that I am carrying on with joy and I pass down to my children. And so what I've learned from the dealings with my mother's estate is how to correct that and how to heal these dynamics so that it doesn't happen again. I'm always interested to know how someone who's had a particularly difficult parenting parents their own children. Uh, it's often, we all say, we're never going to do that with our kids, but we often end up becoming our parents. How have you got on? I'm not my mother, I'm me. And so our children are our greatest teachers. And oftentimes they can reflect to us 
parts of ourselves that we didn't even know we were carrying on that might be reminiscent of our parents. Um, our children are also come to us with unconditional love. And if we can recognize that, we can learn from them some magnificent gifts on how to play, how to be present, how to love, and how to appreciate being loved, being loved unconditionally and what that means. So my children have taught me that, and I'm very grateful for them. And they carry on this legacy. They will carry on this legacy for a place of grace and joy because I talk to them about a lot of things my parents didn't talk to me about so that when I'm not here, they're not hit over the head or, you know, they're not caught off guard by certain things because um, I didn't impart to them certain information that I know that they'll need when I'm not here. What are you thinking about? Can you can you be more specific at all? Well, um, just living from their hearts <laughs> and not doing something because they think the blood in their veins means that they have to carry on this legacy a certain way. I mean, when my mother died, I thought I had to fill her shoes for a while in the way that I thought that would have to be done. And one day I realized, no, it's not about that. It's about how do you carry on this legacy? Because it's, it's yours now. And so the same with my children. It's not about you doing things the way that I did. It's about trusting your own hearts and trusting where you are in your relationship to who you are and carrying things on from there. And the main thing that I tell them is follow your hearts. Your heart is your GPS. If you're not happy with something, that means you don't go in that direction. It is that simple. I want you to be happy. And if my mother had a chance to tell me or warn me or whatever of what I might have encountered years ago, she would have told me, I want you to be happy. All of our parents want us to be happy and to have a better life than they did. And so I've told my children, make sure that that's what you do. Whatever it takes, be happy. And are they? They are. So far, so good. And if something happened to me today, I would not be worried about my children. And that's a gift to be able to even feel that way. It is. If we were to play a track of your mother's at this point, what would you like it to be? Oh, gosh, there's so many favorites that I have. <laughs> um, Let me give you three to choose from because they're my favorites. I um, bet you they won't be one of mine. All okay. right. Mississippi Goddamn. <laughs> Nope. Young, gifted, and black. Nope. And got no, I got life. Yeah, you like all the revolutionary songs. Yeah. And see, this is why I'm doing this big band show because a lot of people talk about the same old songs. Oh, sorry. If you really, if you really know her catalog, there's so many more. So I'm going to introduce you to one that you might not even please know. Do. Two, two. One is House of the Rising Sun the bitter end if you watch it on youtube oh my goodness to this very day every time i watch that performance my blood just like whoa i'm like yes go mommy go there's that and then the second one is mood indigo off her central park blues album where she's still in her 20s and she's combining swing and classical and just so effortlessly it's brilliant so those are the two songs that i'm mentioning to you right here right now all right, we made the call. That was Lisa Simone. We made the call.
And we're going to play... Can we play House of the Rising Sun? I've chosen House... We've got Mood Indigo down here, but I said, why can't we play House of the Rising Sun? It's so much better. Let's do that. in New Orleans
That was Nina Simone's version of House of the Rising Sun. Uh, Lisa Simone didn't fancy the protest songs, and it's not what she does in her shows, but we thought we'd play uh, the song that Nina Simone wrote after the Birmingham church bombing of 1963 in Alabama, um, and also... Uh, encapsulating the murders of Emmett Till and of Medgar Evers in Mississippi. It's called Mississippi Goddamn. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air I can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn This is a show tune But the show hasn't been written for it yet Hound dogs on my trail School children sitting in jail Black cat cross my path I think every day's gonna be my last Lord have mercy on this land of mine We all gonna get it in due time I don't belong here, I don't belong there I've even stopped believing in Don't tell me, I'll tell you Me and my people just about do I've been there so I know Keep on saying, go slow But that's just the trouble Washing the windows I was kidding Picket lines School boycotts They try to say it's a communist plot All I want is equality For my sister, my brother My people and me Yes, you lied to me All these years 
You told me to wash and clean my ears And talk real fine just like a lady And you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie Nina Simone, Mississippi Goddamn. 